Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Kelly Wisness. Hi, this is Kelly Wisness. Welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Stephen Rube. He joined IMO in 2013 and now serves as a Chief Clinical Officer. He contributes a frontline user's perspective to IMO's executive team. He also leads a team of clinicians and non-clinicians designed to take a proactive approach to customer service and sales, both in the U.S. and internationally. Dr. Rube has served as faculty at both Northwestern University and the University of Illinois Medical Schools. Prior to joining IMO, he practiced family medicine for 15 years in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood. He also served as the Chief Medical Information Officer at a large urban hospital in Chicago. He attended Case Western Reserve University, the Ohio State University College of Medicine, and Northwestern University's Family Medicine Residency Program. He is board certified in clinical informatics and is a fellow of the American Medical Informatics Association. In this episode, we're discussing combating healthcare industry headwinds through data standardization. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Rube. Thank you so much for having me. Well, wonderful. Let's jump in, shall we? So can you tell us a little bit about IMO and what you do there? Absolutely. Um, IMO uh, has been around for um, about two and a half decades, actually, uh, approaching our 30th anniversary shortly. Um, and it's the company that uh, is in play everywhere, but very few people know about. Um, IMO's original mandate when they started out was to uh, be in the EHR space, the electronic medical record space, and, and you know enter that very competitive field. Um, what was discovered very, very early on was that while the need to um, adhere to certain standards, coding standards for, for billing and for charging, there really wasn't a standard language for clinicians doctors, nurses, therapists, and so on, the people at the front line, there was no standard language that spoke in the way they needed to at the level of detail that was needed by the clinician in front of the patient to capture um, the situation and to capture their clinical intent. So what happened was you ended up with um, two very dissatisfied you know, arenas. You had the administrative world who required code sets, whether it be ICD or SNOMED, uh, in order to make these systems function properly, because that's how they were designed. Um, and they were in clash with the clinical world that was trying to say something accurately about a patient um, that these code sets were really never designed to do. So IMO created what they called interface terminology. And the interface is really those two worlds, between the clinical world that needs to say something uh, often in a very finely detailed way, and the administrative world that really just needs to um, capture codes and, and, and put people into categories uh, for various reasons, whether it be reporting or analytics uh, or billing. Um, IMO came along and was able to um, satisfy that need on both sides. How we do that uh, is, is a bit complex, but simply um, we have a group of clinicians and we have a group of coders. So we kind of pretend, if you will, that we're the real world and we map those terms for them. So when we deliver them um, to all of the major EHRs in, in the United States and even in the English speaking world outside of the United States, um, both sides are able to accomplish what they needed to do um, very seamlessly. 
the clinical people say things that they want to say in the language that they were trained. And as that data gets moved down the line, it seamlessly travels with all of those necessary codes um, that are required to keep the lights on. So hopefully that was you know, fairly, fairly straightforward as to what IMO does. Um, how, as we played in this field, though, we realized that there were other areas in the in the in the clinical data space um, that we could affect change and create products for. Sounds very interesting. So, what made you decide to get into health IT? Ah, uh, that's. <laughs> um, do do we ever decide? Is the is the question? When when I came out of my residency uh, in family medicine, uh, I was. I decided with a friend of mine who was also in that program to open our own practice um, in the city of Chicago. Um, we decided that since we were starting from scratch, we were going to be the most advanced, uh, technologically um, advanced practice in the city. This was when informatics was still in its infancy and, and EHRs, it was like the Wild West where there weren't a lot of rules. Um, we set out to do research to find out about systems. And what happens then is people around the hospital and hospital administrations, they start to take notice that maybe maybe these two individuals understand a little bit about, uh, about electronic medical records. Um, we did do that. We set up our office that way. Uh, in certain ways, it was a success. In certain ways, it was very much a learning exercise. We were so bold as to actually build an office without a records room. We, we were under the misconception that we'd be able to do completely without uh, paper charts. And this was around 1994. So a little bit early, not to date myself. But therefore, what happened is it's kind of it was I'm not sure if it was me choosing informatics or informatics choosing me. Um, but along uh, the years, in addition to practicing medicine, um, I was always paying attention to what we could do, how we can use these new technologies um, as more of a tool to practice medicine than a hindrance and um, allow them to to assist instead of getting in the way. Um, as that ha happens, you you acquire a body of knowledge. Um, people start to ask your opinions. Um, you run into situations uh, around, for example, during Meaningful Use One, uh, the hospital that I was currently working at uh, wanted to use some of my expertise to help them get adoption of their electronic medical record. Um, so it was kind of a, an organic process. Um, uh, about a decade ago, when I ran into IMO, um, I thought it was very interesting um, and started working here while I was still doing some clinical work. And um, I started, as I say, in the mailroom, creating content and really understanding uh, what structured clinical data looks like. And we can get into what that means as opposed to unstructured clinical data. Um, started getting into that. And then... Um, Relatively recently, um, our academic arm, ABIA, established a fellowship uh, for people who are interested in getting board certified in informatics. And uh, I took that course and, and that exam. And um, then uh, here we are today, where I am now, uh, as, I, as you said, uh, working with IMO to, to really help assist clinicians um, in, 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 the, in the struggle to capture quality clinical data. Very cool. What a great story that is. Thank um, you. Yeah. Um, so IMO recently published findings from an industry survey that found that data quality issues continue to be a key issue for providers, with a surprising 98% of providers openly acknowledging that their organization must improve the way it leverages data to confront challenges. So why is this still such a big issue and what are we doing wrong? Interesting. I'm not sure I would label it as necessarily doing something wrong, although we could debate that. It, it's it's a question of 
the field is is has was in its infancy when it was introduced into the the clinical world and the electronic health record companies that are out there are all doing a very good job um, but what they viewed as the entire problem was really only probably a slice of the problem and, and I'll give you an example so the electronic health uh, records are very good at capturing structured data. If I'm having a conversation with you and you say, I have disease X and I record you have disease X, we could capture that in a, in a structured field and great, everybody's happy. I think what we learned over time is that so much clinical information um, is in disparate sources. It's in other places other than captured in an encounter between you and a clinical representative, either a triage nurse or a physician. So, for example, if you have a procedure and a surgeon or a, a medical subspecialist dictates a report, um, that information will be in the record, but it might be in what we call an unstructured form. Um, many people have health information in, uh, in non-medical applications, such, such as Facebook or LinkedIn or other um, um, profiles that are t um, contained on smartphones or smart apps. So there was so much clinical information out there. Um, many of it contradictory, um, a lot of it not being uh, curated anyway, that was being thrown into this data swamp, if you will. People use the term data lake and data warehouse. I think they're being generous. Um, I think when you start looking, especially at some of the larger institutions um, or what we call IDNs, which are systems of, of more than one hospital, um, they may have different electronic records that don't even speak to each other well. So you really end up with this murky picture of clinical data everywhere from dictated reports that the computer can't really read or decipher to just strings of numbers and letters that are supposed to represent diseases. And that continuum really uh, creates for an environment where data is not only not clean, but it's not standardized or normalized. And that is one of the places where IMO really thinks we can help um, because at an atomic level, we understand what these clinical terms mean. And it's just a question of mining them, adding structure to them. And then you can go from data swamp to data lake to data warehouse, where everything is now nicely folded and put into neat little drawers. And then you can use them as you see fit. So it's not a question of what we're doing wrong. I think we're just still evolving in this process. We cleaned up one aspect of it. And now we have to start looking at all the pockets of unstructured data um, that are in what we call the data quality chain. It's a very interesting way of looking at it, yes. Um, it's no surprise that clinician burnout and a looming recession are at the top of healthcare providers' minds this year, as is everyone's. Um, so how can complete and consistent data address these issues and set providers up for success? Sure, that's, that's kind of like the holy grail that many are searching for right now. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, so yes, physician burnout is a problem. That's probably a, a topic for a whole other webinar because it's, it's multifactorial. But we could address the, the issues that, that are germane to our discussion uh, in the sense that regardless of what else is going on in medicine, now we are um, charging or kind of demanding, if you will, that our clinicians um, become data entry people. And they're not trained to do that, not good at it, nor do they um, see it as a necessary um, addition to the care that they're trying to deliver. Um, I truly believe that most clinicians walk into a patient room with the idea that they're there um, to, to help alleviate pain or treat a medical problem. And the idea that they're going to be tied to this software application 
and spend most of the visit with their back to the patient trying to type. I'm, I'm a two-finger typist like anybody else. becomes very, very frustrating. So on, on, a bigger, on a bigger scale, a way to look at it is we need to take these new technologies that almost no one is arguing that the electronic medical record is not of benefit. It is. Um, coming from someone who was alive during the paper chart days, and I can't tell you how many hours I spent looking for charts that were in radiology when I wanted to see a patient or trying to decipher handwriting, including my own, which I can't even read half the time. Um, so medical records have have brought us very far as far as patient safety and delivering knowledge. Um, but what we really need to do is continue to strive to make it easier and more seamless as a keyword for the clinicians to get information into the system. And then on the flip side of that, the same, get it seamless and easy for the system to provide information to the clinician. So what do I mean by that? If you and I are having a conversation, the best thing the medical record could do is to be an application in the background, that it's not intrusive into our discussion, into the trust that we have with each other. You're seeing that now, and we'll get into AI and NLP and machine learning, and people can argue about what all those terms mean. But can we use those tools to really assist clinicians into capturing accurately what's happening at the point of care? Because we know that is the most accurate time and place to capture what's going on. Not later, not having someone going back and sift through, you know, stuff that would capture. It's at the point of care we need to capture that accurately and preserve it. We then need the system to learn from that information that it's capturing and then be able to assist in the workflow, in parts of the workflow where it makes sense, to uh, assist clinical people in decision support, in analytics, in, in, in other types of reporting, in identifying um, patients for clinical trials, all of the stuff that really slows us down right now. Medicine is getting more and more complicated. Um, I was recently at an, an AMIA conference here in Chicago and, and we were joking on how medical school is going to have to go from four years to six years to eight years if we're going to expect, you know, new grads to, to absorb all of the information we're asking them to. In order for that not to happen, we really have to provide them tools. Tools no different than a stethoscope or a blood pressure machine were 60 or 70 years ago. They were just tools. They didn't take over, you know, what was going on. They just were another tool in the quiver that, that, that clinicians could use um, to practice medicine um, more effectively. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, for the last, the shorter answer is we need to get out of their way. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, that makes a, yeah exactly. Uh, so for the past few years, um, you mentioned AI already. AI has been a buzzword in the healthcare oh, yeah. industry um, due to its potential to drive meaningful change in healthcare. Surprisingly, the survey found that eighty-five percent of provider leaders think AI has received too much hype. So, what is it that AI is missing? Uh, probably again another topic for an entire podcast. <laughs> right? But, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. I, so, what it's missing is 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 clarity, and and what I mean by that is, again, if you asked a room full of a hundred, even informaticists, and this happened at this AMIA conference in a room of twenty, we couldn't agree what AI was. Um, so, I think there's there's two there's three main reasons why people are still skeptical about AI. One is that it's not well-defined. So if it's not well-defined, how can I give you my opinion on it? You know, is a is an EKG machine that gives me an interpretive reading AI? I would say maybe in its primitive sense, but that's not what we're talking about today. So the fact that it's having trouble people not, uh, defining it is a problem. 
Number two, and that kind of stems from number one, is that clinicians have a tough time visualizing what AI is going to do for them, you know, during during their day. I practice medicine on a daily basis. I have a routine. How is this going to fit into my routine? Is it going to be another thing that's going to slow me down that I'm going to have to learn? Um, you know, there's that adoption curve that we talk about. Yes, there will always be a few people out there ready to adopt it right away. But for the most part, clinicians tend to be, you know, a cautious bunch. Um, and, and so adopting new technologies that aren't well-proven and well-defined is going to take some time. Um, I think a third uh, answer is doctors are already, again, skeptical of things coming between them and the patient. Is this going to be another barrier um, between you know, them and the patient um, that, that's going to, again, erode that trust that patients feel when they come in and speak to us? Um, and the last one, I think, is kind of you know, the whole you know, uh, Skynet Terminator kind of thing. Are the machines going to take over? Uh, you know, for us practicing medicine, um, there's a bit of skepticism there, obviously not to that extreme, but, you know, physicians really still view medicine as an art and not a, um, an algorithm, if you will, that can be just marched down and spit out with an answer. So we really have to, you know, be wary of that. I think there's no question that these things are coming. Um, if you would have gone to an AMIA conference, probably two years ago, there might've been one or two, you know, courses or lectures on AI and machine learning. I charge you to find one course or lecture this last one uh, last week that didn't, where the topic didn't come up. It came up everywhere. The the exponential growth of, you know, programs like ChatGPT and just um, NLP um, ideas in general are, are progressing at such a, a, a pace that it really is upon us as an industry to get out in front of it, define it, define everything from how it will be deployed to the morality of it. For example, I mean, are you obligated to inform patients when they're being when a doctor is being assisted um, by AI? Um, it's very similar to when the Da Vinci robots were introduced in surgery. It, it took a long time for people to get comfortable with that, as well as get trained with it, as well as patients to get comfortable with that an, a robot was going to do part of their surgery. So I think this is like that. I think we can do it, but I think we need to get out in front of it because it's moving a lot faster than uh, a lot of people are aware. Yeah, no, those are some really good points. Um, very interesting indeed. Uh, it's no secret that we have a data issue in America, and there are many companies trying to fix that issue to improve care and outcomes for patients. So what makes IMO unique? Um, IMO is unique, I think, um, and this kind of branches off one of the questions I answered earlier, is that we started uh, in a different place than most other companies. We started at the clinical language level. Um, most other companies look at the standard code sets, ICD and SNOMED, and this is no criticism of those. They do very well what they were designed to do. You know, ICD, the International Classification of Disease, um, it originally was International Classification of Death. And that's not a joke. It was, it was a code system created to put people in buckets. You had an illness for reason one, two, or three, a different reason, or I don't know. It really wasn't about specifically calling out what was going on with a patient or documenting it. Um, SNOMED is, is probably the international leader for a clinical code set that's designed for analysis, collation of data, but it's meant to be used after the fact. Once you have data collected, how can you categorize it in a way using an ontology to really analyze that data? It's written in their charter that way. No one went to the clinician and said, we're going to create terms to say what you want to say, and then we'll apply the data on the end. Now, why do I give you that history again? 
because that means when you're trying to clean up the clinical data chain and you're trying to clean up these swamps and turn them into you know cleaner versions of data and normalize this data, IMO is really the only one who was there for the birth of these terms. In other words, we understand what clinicians are trying to say at a subatomic level. So if you broke everything down in medicine, we were probably there. We probably helped create the terms that those clinicians used at the beginning and then got dumped into a data swamp and, and a lot of the information was lost. If you think about the fact that IMO is right now in you know about 85% of the acute care facilities um, and all of the major EHRs, people are already using IMO's data to capture what was going on at the point of care. We just need to follow that through the data quality chain and make sure that information is not lost. Then, like a magic decoder ring, we could look at the big data aggregators and say, you know what? We recognize a lot of these terms. We know what that means. We can read an unstructured piece of text and understand what the clinician was trying to say because we've been speaking their language for almost 30 years. So I think that that's you know the major aspect that really makes us different than some of the other companies that are looking at you know data aggregation and normalization. Sounds good. And so how can someone learn more about this podcast topic and or IMO? So probably the best way, um, one of the best sources of resources for IMO is our website um, at imohealth.com. Um, there are not only, there's not only information there about the company, but there's a lot of articles by people similar to myself. Um, we have I happen to have on my team um, uh, several nurse and physician informaticists who do podcasts, who write letters. Um, we have most of those resources available on the website. And it really is interesting with all the different backgrounds that we've accumulated over time um, to have the different different um, perspectives uh, on clinical information um, that we have within IMO. Um, we're also very available for people to reach out to. Um, you know, uh, my email, srub at imohealth.com. Um, you could reach out to me. We have many people. We do a lot of, you know, webinars and seminars and, and we're, we're very passionate uh, about uh, clinical data and, um, and, and the use uh, by clinicians uh, in the real world. It sounds like you are for sure. So thank you for giving us that information. And really, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rubin, for sharing all this fantastic information with us. No problem. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. Until next time. This concludes our episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help protect and optimize revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.